Well, let's dive into some of the big questions about Ezekiel's temple. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, friends, to our Thoroughly Jewish Thursday broadcast. Today is the day of the funeral for George Floyd. Who would have imagined when he started his day not that long ago that the whole nation would know his name, that there would be protests, riots around America, that we could be watching societal shifts in many ways? Who would have imagined any of that? We hope that he's in right relationship with the Lord and despite his horrible death, enjoying God's presence now. 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. It is Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. So any Jewish-related question of any kind, any Jewish-related comment, argument you'd like to have with me, if it's about Hebrew language, about Messianic prophecy, if it's about modern state of Israel, as long as it's Jewish-related, Give us a call, 866-348-7884. I want to look at a fascinating subject before we look at news in Israel, before I share a very moving article with you from a Christian Zionist friend, before we take your calls. I want to look at Ezekiel's temple. Now, spoiler alert, let me tell you up front, I, I am not going to reveal the this, this is it. Now you got, oh, that we solved all the problems. Now, that's not going to happen. In fact, what I want to do is present some of the problems and raise some of the challenges and some of the mystery of this passage. So if you think out loud with me, Ezekiel, the 36th chapter, it speaks of the Jewish people returning from exile, to returning from Babylonian exile. And, and God sprinkling clean water on their hearts in the land and, and putting his Torah in their hearts and giving them a new heart and a new spirit, right? So that was not fulfilled with the return from Babylon. So we still await that, and we see it partially ongoing in Jewish people returning back to the land and little by little coming to faith in Messiah, but expect to see a massive increase in that. Chapter 37, the Valley of the Dry Bones. Again, a picture first of exiles coming out of Babylon, but with other applications through history until the end of the age. Then Ezekiel 38 and 39, the Gog and Magog prophecy, apparently speaking of an end-time war with Israel against her enemies. And then that's followed by Ezekiel 40 through 48. Ezekiel 40 to 48. And there, there is a glorious vision of, of God's glory returning to the temple. It had departed in Ezekiel 10 because of, of Israel's sin. Now the glory returns. And Ezekiel, who himself is a priest, is now involved in a vision. He is, a, he is officiating there in the temple and involved with what is going to happen. And there is rebuking for Israel's uncleanness and things like this. But this glorious structure will be built and the sacrificial system will be restored, and there'll be a prince who'll be leading in the midst of it. You have all of this going on, 
and then you have this river that that comes from from God. This you know Ezekiel it gets deeper and deeper, famous passage, right until the, you swim in it, and then that goes out. And Ezekiel forty seven that brings healing. The the leaves of the trees on the banks of the river bring healing to the nations. It's a glorious passage. It's a very mystical passage, and at first glance, when Ezekiel is receiving it as a captive in Babylon himself, you would think that this is a temple to be built when they return from exile. They should build according to this pattern, which would be different than than the Torah pattern in certain ways. They should build according to this pattern, and God will miraculously turn the heart of his people to him, and the glory of God will be there. This was the expectation on the return from exile, but it didn't happen. Remember, Ezekiel's going to be officiating in it. He's, Ezekiel, you, you, he's being spoken to directly and supposed to show the plans to his people. And when they see it, they'll be ashamed. Here we are in exile, and this is what God wants to do. So it's fascinating. Now, was it built? No. Some Christians say it's all symbolic. It is symbolic of future restoration, and all the details just symbolize aspects of worship and meeting with God and purification and so on. It's a beautiful interpretation, but I don't see it sustained scripturally. In other words, with all respect to those who have argued for it eloquently over the centuries, right until our, our day, the, the, problem, the problem is that it, it seems odd to go into so much detail in so many ways when it's just symbolic and when it's not actually supposed to be physically built. But if it is supposed to be physically built, that presents a problem for many Christians because it institutes a sacrificial system. If it's supposed to be literally rebuilt, it provides challenges for traditional Jews because the dimensions don't fit. So let's look at this. Ezekiel 45, verse 22. I want you to look with me at the commentary of Rashi, Rashi being the foremost a rabbinic commentator of Bible and Talmud living in the 11th century. Uh, so it says, The prince shall make on that day for himself and for all of the people of Israel a bull for a sin offering. And, uh, and, and then you've got the Passover going on, but the, there seem to be contradictions between those laws and the laws in the Torah. So Rashi comments on this and says, Our rabbis said that they sought to suppress the book of Ezekiel, for his words contradicted the words of the Torah. Indeed, uh, Hananiah, the son of Hezekiah, the son of Gurion, uh, is remembered for good, for he sat in his attic and expounded on it. But because of our iniquities, what he expounded on, uh, these sacrifices, why a bull, it just goes on and on. It, it was lost. Because of our iniquities, it was lost. In other words, the Talmud states that this man, otherwise unknown, spent night after night in his attic working on this, trying to reconcile everything. And he figured out how it all works, but we lost it. We don't have it anymore. Let, let's look at the actual Talmudic description there. So this is Again, in the, in the Babylonian Talmud, the tractate Chagigah. So I'll, I'll um, uh, let's just see here. Okay, we've got to scroll down, Kai, uh, towards the end of this passage. Let's keep scrolling down. Keep scrolling down. And it's right 
towards the tail and keep going down. Keep going down. All right. Uh, let's just see. And keep going. All right. Uh, tell you what, since we're doing live radio here, <laughs> but the text I had sent, Kai, that's, that's what we wanted to, to pull up, that one section. So the Talmud goes on to explain that he used X number of cruises of oil you know, to, to kindle his, his lamp, his oil lamp. And he worked, and he, and, he, and he discovered it all. So he's remembered for good, but as Rashi says centuries later, we don't actually have it. So from a traditional Jewish viewpoint, there are challenges because it contradicts, because it contradicts what is written in Torah about various laws and sacrifices and, and, and dates and things like that. So that's a, that's a problem for a traditional Jew. For a Messianic Jew, traditional Christian, it can be a problem because why do you need a sacrificial system for when Jesus died for sins once and for all? Why do you need a sacrificial system? That's redundant. And it's rebuilding what is, what is past. So it presents problems there. And from a historical viewpoint, it presents problems because you would have expected them to build that when they came back from exile. But of course, they weren't worthy of doing that. They were not righteous as they were supposed to be. That never happened. Maybe you could say it never will happen, but then it's still in the Bible. So it's very puzzling. Now, oh, a couple years ago, I was praying a lot about the passage and studying it and looking at it and feeling that the Lord wanted to, to give me some insight. Not that I'd be the one to discover, but just that, that I felt like the Lord was going to help me with some insights. So I was praying about it, thinking about it, and one of my closest colleagues writes to me, Mike, do you have any insights on Ezekiel's temple? Has God given you any insights? I forget the exact word. It's like, funny you should write, because I'm praying about this very thing and studying. And then I was out uh, with a colleague, and we were in Kansas City and went to a prayer room to, to pray. And some folks said, hey, would you like us to pray with you? And, and they're involved in prophetic ministry to see if the Lord shows us anything. Sure. <laughs> so sure enough, here's a prophetic word that God's going to give me insights into Ezekiel's temple. Yeah, so... I do hope one day to study, dig more, and, and see if I can learn from what others have learned and, and get some other insights that would be helpful. I'm sure there's been great insight from many angles up to now. But a counter-missionary, Tovia Singer, claims that it presents a massive problem for Christians because the text repeatedly mentions Hanasi, the prince, the prince, the prince. And then his outreach Judaism website, he says, the prince is the Messiah. And, and here the prince is offering sacrifices. Why in the world would the Messiah be offering sacrifices for his own sins? Jesus is offering sacrifices? And I'm thinking about this today because a caller asked that very question yesterday. I said, hey, I, I might come back to that today. But let me show you something interesting. Rashi, again, foremost Jewish commentator, on Ezekiel chapter 44, verse 3. Rashi on Ezekiel 44, verse 3. And he's talking about the prince, right? The prince, he is a prince. He shall sit there and to eat bread before the Lord. And Rashi explains it. The high priest is a prince. And because of his importance, he will be permitted to eat the meat and bread of hallowed status uh, in that gate. So interestingly, what Toby Singer doesn't do, but this is very typical, where there's a solid answer that refutes him within Judaism. He won't tell you that it exists. Rashi doesn't believe it's the Messiah here. He believes it's, it's the high priest. 
Now, there are many other Jewish interpreters that say it is the Messiah. But there's nothing in the text that says it's the Messiah. Nothing in the text proclaims it in any messianic terms or gives him any messianic status. And Rashi doesn't even think it's the Messiah here. Says it's the high priest who's a prince. What do you know? The Christian answer is either that the sacrifices are symbolic in Ezekiel, or just as Old Testament sacrifices pointed forward to the cross, future sacrifices will point back to the cross. For many, that's unsatisfying, but that's another option. We know elsewhere, like in, the, in Jeremiah 33, it mentions Thanksgiving offerings and things like that. And from that, some of the rabbis concluded that in the world to come, there will still be offerings, but they will only be Thanksgiving offerings and not offerings dealing with sin. So that's another aspect for another period of time. Lots to unpack. Lots to unpack. Right, we'll, we'll get your calls when we come back. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Yes, yes, yes. It is Thoroughly Jewish Thursday, Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us. Before we go to your Jewish-related calls, I, I want to bring on a friend from Bronx, New York, Pastor Dimas Celebrarius. Uh, there's a major event about to happen in New York City, and I thought it's, it's important that we get word out to all of you in the city that might be able to participate with this. Uh, Pastor Dimas, welcome back to the Line of Fire. Are you there, sir? Uh, yes, we're still here. Is he, is, he, is he here now? Uh, we are on the air live right now. Hey, Dr. Brown, how you doing, sir? Doing good, man. How you doing, buddy? We're here to bring the peace to the police. And uh, we got a few police that don't want to... The mayor asked for the clergy to come out and help. So the police are getting organized. I mean, the clergy is getting organized to help the police. And now we'd be in trouble. Now, if this was Occupy Wall Street... It'd be different, you know, but we're being peaceful, and uh, we're here to try to bring peace to our city. So ask your listeners right now to be praying for us and, uh, and pray, for, pray for our leaders here and pray for this gentleman named Captain Can. Pray for him, you know, because we, we're standing for righteousness, and we have about 10,000 Christians on their way here. Whoa, okay, so here is where? Here is 44th and Broadway, right, 44th, right, right in front of Good Morning America, 44th and Broadway. 44th and Broadway, so so right in the Times Square area, basically? Yeah, right right, right in the heart of Times Square. Yeah. Right. All right, so that's in Manhattan, friends. And when is the event supposed to start? It's from 4 o'clock to 8 o'clock. We have Alan Houston coming. We have uh, different, different megachurch pastors and leaders, local leaders, local churches. We're going to be praying for the police, and uh, it's going to be beautiful. Yeah. So are you saying that Mayor de Blasio, who's been so hostile to the churches in different ways, that he oh. actually reached out to you? Yes, he has reached out to all the clergy and said, please come out to the streets. And wow. Help. 
Isn't that something? Come out and help. It, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad he recognizes that you're the ones to go to, and that if there's going to be peace <laughs> that comes to the city, the church is going to have to lead the way. Uh, but Amen. right now, you're getting some opposition from, from some of the police, you're saying. Yeah, you know, it's a big city, so it's hard for everybody to know. But the mayor's office knows, the governor's office knows, and um, so we're just trying right now to get all this sorted out. So, you know, we love our police, and uh, we're out here to stand for them and, and support them. And uh, so we're just trying to make sure that, that they're aware of that and know that. So uh, just pray that our message will be clear to them, that we're on their side. Got yeah. it. All right. That's, again, 44th and Broadway. Man, I wish I could I just snap my fingers, physically be there. And that'll be 4 o'clock to 8 o'clock tonight. Is it going to be aired in any way online? Um. You know, there's different uh, groups coming that's going to be, it's going to be on Facebook Live. They can go to We, that they can go to, it's called uh, We Can Stop the Silence. That's the hashtag, We Can Stop the Silence. They find that on Facebook and Instagram, they'll be able to watch it there. All right, let's, just, stop the silence. let's just pray with you right now, okay? Thank you. Father, I pray, for my, I pray for my brother Demos. I pray for all the other pastors and leaders involved. I pray for the Christians who will be gathering. Pray for the police, the authorities, that your name would be glorified, that this message would get out to the nation, that a unified church standing together for righteousness, standing together for reconciliation, standing together for peace, for love, that the message would get out, that Jesus would be exalted, that every barrier would be removed, and that your purposes would be accomplished and may mayor de blasio's heart be softened and other leaders may they recognize new york needs jesus thank you lord Lord. hey god bless you man can't wait to see you again buddy god bless you thank you sure bye-bye all right right from the streets of new york city friends so keep that in prayer and if you're anywhere near there and you can get out you feel good about being out in a crowd setting then that's where it's going to be happening 44th and broadway It'd be interesting if there's a large gathering and it's a large peaceful gathering and Jesus is exalted if the media will cover it at all. It'd be interesting to see, won't it? All right, 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Jeff in Houston, Texas. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Well, hello, Dr. Brown. Uh, nice to talk with you. Thank you. Uh, interesting. I think I've saw your testimony maybe 10, 12 years ago on one of the Christian TV shows, and then you kind of dropped off the radar screen for me. And then someone sent me a link, a YouTube link, that you were debating uh, Rabbi Shmuley, I guess, about a year ago. And uh, so that kind of made me, you know, start looking you up again, and I just love how, what you're doing, how calm you are in those debates. It's uh, it's pretty amazing. So uh, I want to start off by telling you... Uh, I'm a Messianic uh, Jew, believer, mm-hmm. like you. Yep. And uh, so when I looked you back up on the Internet, I found that uh, your mother and my mother have something very much in common. They gave birth to two Jewish boys on the same day. So, oh, seriously? Sweet. <laughs> seriously. Yeah, we got the same birthdays. You're a couple years older than I am. Okay. So, anyway, uh, I grew up in a uh, conservative uh, Jewish family, four years of Hebrew school, bar mitzvah, uh, became a believer in, in Jesus in 1981. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, so I, you know, went all in and loved to study the Word of God, loved to study the Hebrew, uh, not nearly as, uh, as uh, 
diverse as it as you are. You know, I love that. But I do, you know, in, in, and I have been teaching men's groups and Bible studies and small groups for many, many years. So something that comes up that uh, I've tried to explain, uh, but I, I think our, your listeners would probably love hearing you explain it. Mm-hmm. In the Shema, Shema Yisrael, Adonai, Eloheinu, Adonai, Echad, the word Echad, uh, meaning compound unity, and I believe there's another word, Yachid, which means single absolute unity. Uh, I don't really like the word Trinity because it, it implies three gods when there's not. I like the word compound unity used in the Shema, so I'd kind of like for you to speak to that and maybe just help people understand yeah. that. Well, well, yeah, actually, there there are a number of, of um, misconceptions involved that we've, we've tried to correct for for, for many, many years. Uh, echad in and of itself just means one. It doesn't mean compound. It doesn't mean exclusively singular. It just means one. Like one day or one rock or one group or just means one. So the same way in English, one can have a wide variety of meanings. You can talk about one couple, one team, one galaxy, one person, right? That just signifying one, but can it be used to speak of several things that are one? Well, what's the first time that Echad is used in the Hebrew Bible? Genesis 1-6. There is evening and morning, Yom Echad, day one, one day. So evening and morning together make up one day. The next time it's used is Genesis 2-24, that Adam and Eve, the two become one flesh, Besar Echad. One, the two become one flesh. It's then used in, for example, Ezekiel 35 about the many different parts of the tabernacle will make one tabernacle. Echad can also be used to refer to that one alone. So just that one, like Solomon alone. Solomon, that one will be the heir in, in First Chronicles, I think, 29. So in, in Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema, Hero Israel, it could be translated... The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. That's how some rabbinic interpreters actually understand it. That one alone is our God. Not meaning there are not many of him. Who would be thinking there are many of him? Okay. Uh, That one and that one alone. Or it could be saying the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But that doesn't tell you if just like a day is evening and morning and, and, and one flesh is man and woman and one tabernacle is many parts of the tabernacle. It doesn't tell you that it is not specifically referring to a, a God. I use the term complex in his unity. Now, there is the word yachid, which is distinctly one, that one meaning one only. Uh, and in some later Jewish confessions of faith, God is referred to as yachid. But that's actually not what's in the Bible. And the whole purpose of Deuteronomy 6.4 was not even to discuss the nature of God. It was to say that Yahweh and Yahweh alone is our God, and that there's one Yahweh. There are not many different Yahwehs, like Yahweh in this city and Yahweh in that city and Yahweh in that. No, no, one Yahweh, one Yahweh only, and he's the only one that we worship. That's the emphasis. So, Jeff, in my book, Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus, Volume 2, it's five-volume series, Volume 2, I get into that in depth and discuss Echad, if you want it in a shorter version, my book, The Real Kosher Jesus, you'll find really helpful. I get into it there. And if you just want to get something for free, everybody listening, watching, take advantage of this. Go to my website, askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org. 
go to the website and sign up for our emails. When you do, you'll automatically get a mini book, an ebook called Seven Secrets of the Real Messiah. And one of those, we, we talk about God's complex unity. So that's, that's an excerpt from The Real Coach for Jesus. So you can get the, the free mini book, ebook, when you sign up for our emails. So do that if, you're, if you don't get them. AskDrBrown.org, AskKDRBrown.org. This is where you won't miss an article. You won't miss a video. That's one. Or you get the book, The Real Kosher Jesus, which is a great learning tool for Jewish, uh, to give to a Jewish friend or great for believers to find out more about the Jewish roots of their faith. Or, go into more depth still, get volume two of Answering Jewish Objections where I get into this. Or get all five volumes. All right, we'll be right back with your call. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. Yes, America continues to be rocked. Uh, We continue to be shaken in, in ways that we haven't cumulatively in our history. Yeah, if you think of the, the Civil War and the divisions in America and the bloodshed there, that's unprecedented. And there are other things in and of themselves unprecedented, but everything happening at once, this is a time of shaking. It is a time for us to rise up as God's people and lead the way in making a difference. And when you study the Hebrew Scriptures, as this is Thirdly Jewish Thursday, you can't get away from the fact that justice matters to God that these were things of great importance to him. That when you see Israel being judged in the Old Testament, you'll see three cardinal sins, idolatry, injustice, and immorality. And these were the things that brought judgment down on Israel. It's a time now where we need to humble ourselves and cry out for mercy, friends. It's an urgent hour. We as God's people must lead the way on every front and make Yeshua Jesus known. Let that be our loudest and clearest message. 866-34-TRUTH. All right, with that, let's go to the phones. And then in a little while, I want to share a very moving article from a colleague who lives in Bethlehem as to why he is a Christian Zionist. Uh, I think you'll be touched by it. Uh, let's go to Waterloo, Iowa. Daryl, welcome to the Line of Fire. Hello, Dr. Brown. How are you? Doing very well. Thank you. Okay, uh, get right to the point. Uh, I've been doing a tremendous amount of studying. God's really blessed me as far as that goes. Uh, I'm having a problem seeing the third person in the Trinity, as we know it as. And mm-hmm. uh, just to emphasize, I'm not a Unitarian, that's for mm-hmm. sure. I clearly see the Son and Jesus' appearance in, you know, in the Old Testament. Right. So, um, yeah, I... I like how you say, I've read some of your things and uh, listened to the way you speak on this topic, that uh, you call it God's triune nature. And I don't think I've ever actually heard you say that there is a third person, as most Trinitarians teach. 
Oh yeah, so absolutely. Like no, no, absolutely, emphatically, there is, and I've I've taught on this in in great great detail with uh, many many verses. So, is your problem seeing the Holy Spirit in a distinct way in the Old Testament or in the whole Bible? Uh, in the whole Bible. Ah, okay. So let's just start in the New Testament then. All right. Sure. And and um, let's just look at a verse like John fifteen twenty six as an example. Okay. So, uh, Jesus says there, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. In, in John 14 through 16, you have a series of verses like this that speak of the Father sending the Son, the Son sending the Spirit, uh, in, in very distinct ways. Or, for example, in, in John 14, 26, uh, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. So you, you have verses like this where you have distinct Father, Son, Spirit, where the Spirit is a teacher the Spirit is a guide. In Isaiah 63 and in Ephesians 4, the Spirit can be grieved, speaking of his personality. In Acts 5, you can lie to the Holy Spirit. In Hebrews 9, the Holy Spirit is spoken of as eternal. Uh, you have, for example, in 1 Corinthians 12, one God, one Lord, one Spirit and then the manifestations of the Spirit can be wisdom, knowledge, tongues, prophecy, things like that. In 2 Corinthians 13, 14, you have the invocation where Paul speaks of the love of God, the grace of the Lord Jesus, and the fellowship of the Spirit. So there you have again God, Lord, Spirit, and fellowship with the Spirit. That's Fellowship is communion. That's relationship. So uh, well, these are I, I'm sorry, just go ahead. some of many verses that speak of the Spirit independently, that speak of the Spirit in conjunction with the Father and the Son, each independently, and that clearly indicate the personhood of the Spirit. Okay. Um, but what I'm seeing in a lot of the passages you mentioned is basically it's like a manifestation of God's power. That That's the way I see it. It's just... But, but that, that doesn't fit. It, it doesn't fit in any verse that I meant. How can someone who teaches and helps you, as a distinct person, who can be grieved, who can be lied to, with whom you can have fellowship, how can that be a manifestation of power? Do you have fellowship with a manifestation of power? But uh, uh, well, no. It would have to be some type of being. Yeah, um, exactly. Does, does a manifestation of power God. have have personhood? Can you lie to it? But that's where you know, like I said, I'm I'm not set on this. I'm, I'm trying to get information. Right. No, but and, what uh, I'm asking is, what else could you ask? I've been for? raised charismatic my entire life. Yeah, yeah. I've been in church no, since no, no, I was I, five years old. I appreciate old, that. So I'm just trying to uh -huh. find out. I'm not accusing. I'm not criticizing. No, no, no. What I don't else think you are. You're would to you help. want? If I can show you. Independence, and you have the baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, 
why do that if the Spirit is just a manifestation of power? Why mention that specifically? See, so baptize in the name of the well, Father, I, Son, got, and Spirit. You can I've grieve the Spirit. Into... You can have communion with the Spirit. So how is that not a person? What else, what else could be said? That's what I'm asking for. Okay. Well, I, I, I know that passage there. That's Matthew 28. And uh, what, one of the interesting things is, I've also been doing a lot of reading of the early church fathers, and I know Eusebius has mentioned that passage in Matthew before. And, I, you know, in his first writings, he never mentioned the Holy Spirit, but then in his latter writings, you see that. And then and in it's only the in te- Matthew Everyone knows the text is original. There's no dispute over the authenticity of the text in ancient Greeks, Greek manuscripts. Okay. Yeah. It's, it feels to me, just to be honest, to be candid, again, I, I mean no criticism, but it feels as if you really are trying to get away from it rather than embrace what Scripture says, as if something that you read or got in your head is causing you to question it, and now whatever I show you, you're going to read differently than what it says. Because the cumulative evidence is quite overwhelming. And that's just off the top of my head, throwing verses out to you. Well, there, there is some, uh, that is some truth to that. And one of the things that got me, and one of the uh, points that was made, is it's like, Where's the throne for the third person in the Trinity? I mean, in the Bible, we see, uh, I know in Revelations 3, Revelations 22, we see, you know, a throne mentioned for God, the Father, and Jesus, but there's no mention of a third. So exactly, if he is a because the whole being, role of the Holy Spirit is to draw attention to Jesus, to the glory of the Father. That's his whole role. That's what Scripture tells us. When you say, so, so who is it that's been influencing you? That's the big question. No, just, uh, I can't recall any names particularly, just a lot of reading I've been doing. Got it. Well, here's, so, here's a good place to, to go to. Again, there's, if, if you want a ton of evidence from me, get Volume 2 of my series, Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus. Volume 2 of Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus. You get a ton of references there. But just go to karm.org, C-A-R-M.org, Karm. Dot org, and just search for the Holy Spirit or deity of the Holy Spirit. It's all there. But again, the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to be hidden and invisible and draw attention to Jesus. And then the exaltation of Jesus is to the glory of the Father. So this is, it doesn't say in 1 Corinthians 15 that the Son gives the kingdom up to the Father so that God can be all in all. So each one complements the other uh, Philippians 2, that every knee will bow to Jesus and confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Holy Spirit testifies of him. A power doesn't testify. Yes, the Holy Spirit includes aspects of God's power, but so does the Father and the Son include aspects of God's power. Hey, keep running to the truth of the word and have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. You cannot have fellowship with an abstract power. All right. Thank you, sir, for the call. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Scott in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Welcome to the line of fire. Yes. Can you hear me clearly? Yes, I can. Yeah. um, I have a question, and I'm not really trying to find a weak point in in the biblical arguments, but tell us about in uh, Daniel chapter 12. 
Uh-huh. Verse 11. Yeah. I'm reading this from the New Living Translation. But it says, From the time the daily sacrifice is taken away and the sacrilegious object that causes desecration is set up to be worshipped, there will be uh, 1,390 days. Mm-hmm. Then it says, And blessed are those who wait and remain until the end of the 1,335 days. Yep. And, uh, and briefly, I, I kind of caught, recall my eyes, those numbers were very similar. And uh, in Revelation, it talks about uh, the Gentiles will trample the holy city for 42 months, which is, mm-hmm. which is about 1,260 days. Right, which is what it says is that, in ver- uh, yeah, Revelation eleven three. Is there any room for stretching that and saying that we're talking about the same? Yeah, it subject, could be. You know, look here's here's the problem, subject. Scott. It's a great question, sir. Uh, let me just jump in because I got a break coming up. The problem is the Book of Revelation is apocalyptic visionary literature, and everything is symbols and signs. So, is it literally days that are counted and could be, or does it symbolize something could be? Daniel is also highly visionary as well. But because they are so close, yeah, they could well be speaking of the same events. And then there's another 30 days for other things that will unfold in Daniel. So it could be. But the last thing to do is worry about it as, there's, as if there's a discrepancy because you're talking about prophetic language and apocalyptic language. It's not like reading a newspaper report with sports scores that, okay, this team scored six runs, this team three runs. We know exactly what it meant. Often it's highly symbolic, but could well be, sir. I appreciate the question. Could well be speaking about the same events, and Daniel is adding on 30 days for some additional things that will happen during that time. Appreciate it. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. YouTube question wondering, why did Jesus say he came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel? What does that lost mean? Is in the lost 12 tribes. Well, the 12 tribes were not fully lost. There were 10 tribes fully lost. They were always incorporated into the rest of the Jewish people. But he meant the people of Israel. He was referring to the people of Israel in general, the Jewish people. And on earth, his first focus was the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then after that, from Israel, the gospel goes to the whole world. All right, 866-34-TRUTH. Before we get to your calls, when I spoke in Bethlehem, Beit Jala, to be exact, a couple of years ago at the Christ at the Checkpoint conference, uh, spent some time with a brother there, Brian Schrager, and he's a strong Christian Zionist, but in an article that he wrote for the Jerusalem Post, an op-ed piece, he shares why he is a Christian Zionist. And in the editorial, he said, because I'm a Christian, many people assume it is my religious faith that is the primary motivation for my advocacy for Israel, but that's not the case. I encourage you to read that 
on the Jerusalem Post. It is a moving, moving story about his son who dies of uh, a terrible, terrible condition as a boy has his leg amputated. It's, it's very, very moving. His son, Taylor, nine years old, huge tumor, discovered in his pelvic dish, especially insidious cancer, one in which tumors calcify, turning into bone, stabbing from the inside out. So as a dad, he's fighting, he's praying for his, his son's healing, but also concerned about his spirit because his son's always been so feisty and, you know, and, and just, uh, you know, when he's after losing a, a leg and amputation, you know, one of his first things is to crack a joke, you know, get half price on shoes and things, just kept that spirit. And, and in the middle of this, Brian couldn't just praise the Lord, thank you, Lord, I know you're good. Some people can. There's just grace to do that. But it's like, God, why are you doing this? And this isn't right. And there was a special prayer service being held at his church one night, and they, they, they worshiped for about 30 minutes, but Brian couldn't enter in. And then he got up to speak, and he said, right now, God is my opponent. And people are like, what are you talking about? But the Jewish doctor was there, and the Jewish doctor understood him. Because within Judaism, there's a tradition of, of challenging God as an act of faith. If you have my Job commentary, you know that's the subtitle, right? Job, the faith to challenge God, a new translation and commentary. There's even an essay in the back of the book on challenging God as an act of faith. Now, to many, that sounds completely irreverent. How can that be? But for Job, because he was so convinced that that God did not seem to be acting justly to him, and he knew that God was a just God, he had to challenge him. And that was an act of faith. So in a certain way, he spoke wrongly of God, and God rebuked him for it strongly. And Job humbles himself and recants. But in another way, Job spoke rightly about him, which is what God says in, in, in Job 42.7. In 42.7 and 8, he rebukes the friends and commends Job, who spoke rightly about him, calls him my servant three times. And, and it was finding this spirit among the Jewish people, uh, among the religious and the non-religious, that he said, that's a people I can identify with. So it wasn't the theology of the promises that God made to Israel to restore them to the land, and uh, Israel's the eternal homeland, the Jewish people. A lot of that comes afterwards for Brian. But for him, it was the identification of a people that could understand that heart of wrestling with God. And uh, he, he wonderfully lays it out in that article. Uh, if any of you have lost a child, you'll find it very moving. For me, having never lost a child or grandchild, thank God, it was deeply moving to read this. It was deeply moving to hear it face to face. So check that out, Why I'm a Christian Zionist, just published on the Jerusalem Post. And if you don't have my Job commentary, I strongly encourage you to get it. If you can afford it, get it. I believe you'll be blessed. It's beautifully produced, high quality, spent obviously many years working on it, and then the goal was to make it accessible to anyone really seriously wanting to dig into the text. You can do it. Uh, I think you'll be richly blessed, helped, edified, strengthened, challenged by it. 866-34-TRUTH. We go back to the phones. Montreal, Michael, welcome to the line of fire. Thank you. Hi, Dr. Brown. Thanks hey. for uh, taking the call. You bet. Um, so, quick question for you. I'm, I'm currently exploring the, the role of the death of the righteous that, yeah. you, uh, that you speak about as an analogy for Yeshua uh, mm-hmm. from Numbers uh, 35. 
And I was just wondering how to conceptualize from Numbers 25, um, Phineas, and I, I guess like the death of the wicked and kind of the atoning power uh, there. Like I know, yeah. I think Milgram is the one who says that it's more like a ransom, uh, more like atonement of money. So he kind of puts it in a, in a different category. And I was just wondering how you kind of deal with Numbers 25. Would you kind of place it in that uh, death of the righteous yeah. type of theme? or Well, re- related to it, but the other side of the coin. So, mm-hmm. um, and I, in Volume 2 of Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus, I do look at this passage. It does use the root, the chaper, kiper, to, to make atonement. But as Milgrom mm-hmm. and my professor at NYU Baruch Levine have pointed out in the Leviticus and Numbers commentaries that the, the root can mean to turn away wrath. Uh, it can mean to ransom. It can mean to expiate, atone. There are different aspects to it. And, and, and mm-hmm. some of that flip sides to the same coin, like by making expiation, wrath is turned aside. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I wrote extensively on, on the root in, in the honorary volume, the Festrif for Professor Levine some years ago, a key pair and atonement in the book of Isaiah. But here's the concept here. Uh, the, the Israelites are, are worshiping the idols of the Midianites and sleeping with their women, uh, mm-hmm. apparently counseled by Balaam. Balak, the king, was pr- apparently counseled by Balaam. This is the way to get them. I couldn't curse them, but here's how you can get God to curse them. So in any event, what we do know for sure is they are having sex with the women. Wrath is broken out. A plague is broken out. There's judgment on the people. And in the midst of this, as, as the Israelites are mourning and, and, and wailing, that Zimri, an Israelite man, takes this woman, Cosby, right into his tent. In front of everybody's weeping, wailing, right? So he takes this Midianite woman into his tent, and Phineas, with his zeal, goes in there, takes a spear, and spears them both through, and the wrath stops. Atonement mm-hmm. is made, okay? So in what sense can atonement be made? We understand the concept if, if I take a life, I pay for it with my own life, right? Shed mm-hmm. blood, Numbers 35, I pay for it with my own blood. Otherwise, it's not, it's not equal. So now you have the problem where you, you shed blood, but it's innocent. It's accidental. You know, your axe head flies off, kills someone. You go to the city of refuge. You stay there, wait until the high priest dies. So right. he's the representative mm-hmm. of the people. His death frees you. His death is like for everybody, the, the blood that never got uh, answered and, and for which there was no retribution. But uh, later rabbinic tradition teaches if a murderer is going to be stoned to death, he's to make confession. If he doesn't know what to say, he says, let my death be an atonement for my sins. So that's right. the concept, right? You pay for it. Okay. So the death of the righteous has power to atone in that uh, you have like a, a big credit, right? I've got a trillion dollars credit on my account. I can pay for a million people's debt of a million dollars or whatever mm-hmm. it is because the credit on my account. So if someone is righteous and they die, they didn't deserve it. But that takes the place of others who did deserve it. If they repent, there could be mercy. Hence, the death of the righteous atones for the sins of the generation. So where does this fit in? This would be the other side of the coin where the, a, a representative ringleader, a public sinner, whose guilt is, is so open and, 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 play, and, and right in the midst of the mourning and repentance, it is so outwardly brazen that his death stops it. That's enough. It, it, it would be equivalent.